as we make our way through this series, we're looking at wrestling with this question, how do I find hope? And uh, we started off kind of the basic areas of, of hope, and we're trying to move into those areas where it gets a little bit, if you will, more particularly difficult. Uh, where do we find hope um, in our weakness? Where do we find hope in, in injustice? And today, in particular, is the vulnerability of betrayal. How do we find hope in those moments? Can you remember a time where maybe uh, a boss made you a promise and they didn't come through on it? Could have been a raise, could have been anything. And you realized, I don't know that I can trust you. Or maybe you went to a professional, uh, not, to, not to, you know, put any of them down, but sometimes we go to a doctor, we go to a lawyer, we go to a counselor, we go to a pastor, and they give us advice and wisdom, and we, we realize that at the end of the day, the wisdom wasn't very wise. And we feel betrayed by that. Or maybe even more specific, you share with a friend a secret. And it comes back that that friend can't keep a secret. And so now the thing that you shared, you thought was in confidence, is now out among a variety of people and some you just didn't want to hear. And you feel the betrayal and you find out, like all of us, that we, because we're human, we're very woundable, very vulnerable to people. And I don't think we can help but move from this horizontal relationship to this vertical relationship where we begin to wonder, are, am I vulnerable not just with people but with God? Uh, Rabbi Kushner a number of years ago wrote a book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, presuming actually that we were born good. I, I would debate that one. But, but he makes that assertion and the trouble that he comes to was actually over this psalm. At the very end of Psalm 62, it says, one thing God has spoken, two things that I've heard. In other words, let me tell you that which is, is something I count on, I, I can guarantee you. And that is what? God, you're strong. You're almighty. It's the phrase, it's the concept that there is no one who is superior to you. Can you imagine believing in a God who is like, well, I created you and I'm powerful, but there's others that can take you down and I can't stop them. That's not what David says. He goes, God, you're strong. You are almighty. You are superior to all. And secondly, you're also loving. Kushner looked at this and he said, I got a problem who uh, is a God with a God who is both strong and loving when his son with Mosaic Downs was born and his entire life, that son's life and the family's life was just one medical crisis after another. And as often as the case, when those things happen, our temptation is not, as, as Pastor Nathan talked about, coming and submitting to God in worship, but is redefining God. And if you read his book, I don't really recommend it. There's better books to read. But if you read his book, whereas God, or when bad things happen to good people, you will discover that he alters the very character and the nature of God. He does that because otherwise he lives with the reality that his, in his mind, his God betrayed him. Sometimes life deals you a difficulty, a friend that does not stay faithful. 
Maybe a boss or a company that does not follow through on their word. Maybe a doctor or a lawyer or a pastor or a counselor that doesn't give you wise words. And in that moment of vulnerability, David says, you will discover something that will alter your life forever. He uses four words or two words and he repeats them over and over again. And the first word he uses is salvation. Now he doesn't use salvation in the sense that like we do. You're saved, you trusted Christ. When did you get saved? That's how we use salvation. David's not using it that way. He talks about salvation like the foundation of a floor. Where do you go when your world is rocked? I go to that which is secure in my life, that which is firm, that which is a foundation. Much like Joseph Bailey after the fifth death in his immediate family, he said after the funeral, he says, I've walked into the raging water of the Jordan and I have touched bottom and the ground is very firm. He, Joseph is not talking about the day I got saved. He's talking about when I faced the fifth funeral in my family and my world was rocked. I walked into the raging waters, into this world and I touched bottom and it didn't give way. That's how David uses the term Salvation. Another term he uses in this psalm, and he does it over and over. In fact, six times directly, he says, I, my soul finds rest in God alone. And when you put the two together, David wants you to understand when all you have is God alone, you will discover all you need is God alone. But it's actually not a fun journey sometimes. And it begins, he says, with this principle or with this truth that in God alone, I will find my sure foundation. That's where he starts. My soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. He alone is my rock. You see, David has no problem with exclusivity. He has no problem. We do in our culture. You walk out there on the streets and you go down there to the Ironman Triathlon and you just walk around with your Bible and say, I believe that the Bible is God's only word, the only revelation of God to mankind on this earth. And you are going to be laughed straight out of the park. You go anywhere in this street, you go to most of your families and, and you go to uh, at work and you, if you take this position that this is God's word alone, there's no other word that God has given to us by which we can know him and be saved, people are going to look at you like you are some narrow-minded back alley bigot. If you go a step further and you quote what Jesus quoted in John 14, 6, where Jesus comes and he says to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father in any other way except through me. Our culture hates exclusivity. David doesn't. He tells you that in God alone, I find rest. In God alone, I find my fortress. He's my rock. And he invites you. You need to come to that same place. The attacks can come. The difficulties can come. But only in God in verse 1 and 2 and 4 and 5 and 6 and 9 does David come to this point where he says, 
There are no other places. It's not God plus. And quite honestly, most of us like that. I like God plus a good surgeon. I like God plus a really good lawyer. I like God plus a really healthy family. I like God plus, and I can add a thousand things onto that plus. And one by one, periodically, God might take some of those things away. And David says that I have gotten to the place in my life. Does that mean he doesn't trust anyone? Does that mean he doesn't have any relationship with people? No, no. But David is dealing with one of the betrayals that may be one of the hardest to feel and experience. He doesn't directly tell us, but probably most commentators, most who have studied this text would agree the high likelihood is, is that behind this psalm is David processing the betrayal of his son, Absalom. Behind this text is a journey that David has made. And here's the journey. He starts out a number of years ago and he's anointed king. He's going to be king over Israel. And he is selected by God. Samuel, the prophet, comes to him and says, God has selected you. Now, you're going to have to wait a little while. And it happens to be 10 years. That's a long time to wait. Can you imagine somebody coming to you, your boss coming to you and saying, hey, you're going to get an incredible raise. It's going to be phenomenal. It's going to be 10 years from now. Or can you imagine going to a woman and saying, would you marry me? And you take that risk and you kneel down and she looks down at you. Yes, I will. I cannot wait. But you got to hang out for 10 years because I got some things to do. 10 years he waited and now he's king. And David, not perfect, but he brings delight to the nation of Israel. He brings the heart of God to the nation of Israel. He brings expansion to the, to the nation of Israel. And then for whatever tragic reason, one of his sons, Absalom, says, Dad, I'm going to get rid of you. I'm going to be king. And he runs him out of town. He conspires against him. And David discovered that God is not going to let him out. Okay, God, it's God plus a really good family. It's God plus a stable kingdom. No. God sometimes will even allow your own children to betray you. And in God alone, we will find our sure foundation. And God alone, we can have things stripped away from us. And God says, you can still trust me. Monday night, I was in a home with a dear, dear friend. I've known him for 40 plus years. He was an elder in one of our previous churches. I walked into his home. His wife has just recently passed away. He's 92. She was 80, I think 88 or 89. 71 years of marriage. They didn't have any children. They couldn't. There's a lot of things I don't understand why God makes decisions, and this is one of them. I have no idea why God wouldn't let them have kids. Beautiful couple. I went over to his home, and we sat there, and we just reminisced. We walked through the journey of our lives together and all the things that we've done. And he's sitting there with the Bible on his lap, and he was just reflecting on the the goodness of God. 
After 71 years, the love of his life went home. And yet he looked at me with eyes and a heart that said, my God has done no bad thing by taking my wife. I trust him. And then he tells me, just came back from the doctor. I've got kidney failure. Doctor says I got three months to live. I expected to need to comfort him. That's why I went. And yet here was this man who had no hint of despair, no regret, no accusation, simply praise. Why? Because for all of his life in God alone, he's trusted. I was reminiscing with him some of my favorite quotes from him. From one of my favorites is he, once we were facing a pretty significant challenge and he comes into my office and he said, Mark, God is so sovereign, not even you can mess it up. <laughs> I'll never forget that. You need that in your back pocket some days. You need to know God is so sovereign that not even you can mess it up. You can't. I witnessed that day on Monday a strength and a joy, much like Tim Keller, who just days before he died, said, there is no tragedy in my future. Just days, hours before pancreatic cancer took his life and God, who had numbered his days, brought him home. There's no tragedy. Because when God alone is all you have, you discover that God alone is all you need. Because in God alone, not only do we find our sure foundation, but we also find our deepest encouragement. He alone, he's my rock. My salvation, he's my fortress. Underline this one, I will never be shaken. What a statement. I hope you and I get to say that. I do, I hope that we can say, I will never be shaken. I will never be turned back. I will never have my boat rocked so deeply that I feel like we're taking on water and going over. He doesn't say it just once. He says it again in verse six and he, he comes back to the same statement. He says, he alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress and I will not be shaken. There is nothing, including the betrayal of a son, that can get to the point where it rocks my foundation. God, you're it. But sometimes God has to take us to that place where a lot of the things that we've been trusting, he kind of removes because we're forced with a question in that moment. Are you enough? I was talking to two doctors who were practicing up in New England and God called them to a different country. They went to Africa. We will leave where they're at uh, unnamed. It's in West Africa. And they went there. She, a pediatrician. He, a general practitioner. And they're serving this fairly remote area together. And one day, recently, this little girl was brought in who had an infection that started in the finger and was making its way up the hand. 
It's this doctor, as she looked at this young girl, she realized in some investigative work that she'd probably been given the wrong antibiotic. But the fact is, is she didn't have any capacity to put in an IV in this place. And so she treated her as best she could. She gave her some antibiotics. But then there was a moment where she said, the best I can give to you is to pray for you. Is that okay? Mom, who was with her, said yes. She brought her team in and they prayed for her. But later as she relayed, she said, it's a hard thing when you're trained as a doctor and you know exactly what this patient needs, but you have no ability because where you find yourself, you have no ability to do what you know this child needs. She sent her home and she honestly thought to herself, I don't know if I'll ever see her again. Her husband, same day, in another room. He's seen a woman. She comes in. She's 17 years of age. She's pregnant. She's married. She's the third or fourth wife of this individual. And he comes in. He's a Muslim, very, very uh, staunch Muslim, comes in. And his wife, as they do the x-ray, finds that she has fluid all around her heart. So she's pregnant, and she has this pressure on her heart because of the pregnancy. And now she has all of this fluid. And the doctor knows if we don't get this fluid off of your heart, you're not going to make it. You're not even going to make it to the delivery day. But they don't have the capacity to insert a drain to get the fluid off of her heart. And so he, like his wife, says to the patient, can I pray for you? And her Muslim husband stands up and says, you will not. He walks out of the room and he goes to his friends, his wife and the other colleagues and he says, we can't pray in the room, but when I go back in there and treat her and do what I need to do, I need to have you praying. He goes in, sends her home. That was both on a Friday. On a Monday, The doctor, the pediatrician, was delighted to see a little girl come into her office as she had asked her to do. And almost to her surprise, but to her delight, it was clear that the infection was receding back into the finger. Sometimes God takes us to that place where all you have is God alone. And you discover that all you need is God alone. A few days later, not on Monday, a few days later, the woman comes back in, they re-x-ray her, and to his delight, he walks in and he tells her, there is no fluid around your heart at all. Now, when you're a doctor and you've spent your entire adult life training and being equipped to treat things, it's a deep frustration and kind of a vulnerable place to be in a setting where you know what to do. You just don't have the medical resources to do it. My guess is some of you have been in that place. Maybe you're not a doctor. Maybe you're something else, but you know what to do. You know how to fix the problem, but your hands are tied or the context doesn't allow you the authority. You can't step in. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's some setting that you just, you know, God, I know what to do. I know how to fix this, but you can't do it. And it's in that moment where God says, I will be enough. 
Does that mean he's going to fix everything? He's going to heal every child? We all know. Sorry, let's not go down that path. We know that's not true. But God is not a part. In fact, I think at times he delights in taking you and me to that place where we can't fix the problem. We can't solve it. We can't heal it. And it's in that place, David said, I will never be shaken. Now, it's significant. It's one thing if David said this after he got his throne back. It's another thing when he's walking out of town and it looks like his son is winning. And those along the side of the road, for those of you who know the story that are mocking David and making fun of him, it's then that it takes a man and a woman of courage to say, I will not be shaken. And in God alone, you can find the deepest encouragement to trust God in moments where you know how to solve it. You just don't have the power to do it. And because of that, in God alone, we will find our best and greatest rewards. One thing God has spoken, verse 11 says, two things I've heard. God, you're strong and you're loving. And in summary is this, surely... You will reward each person according to what he has done. God, you're going to reward people. And you're going to reward those who have honored you. And you're going to bring what? Justice and vindication to those who are wicked. I'm not sure when it started or where it all came from. But it seems like almost every week. Something happens in a person's life and then I'll hear a person over here with this commentary say, well, karma sucks. And what they're trying to tell me in that moment is that person who something bad happened is karma has gotten them. In other words, they kind of got what they deserved. Presuming that somewhere in their earlier life, these guys were jerks. Periodically, as one did recently, this person, interestingly enough, professes to be a believer in Christ, looks at me and says, you believe in karma, don't you? (laughs) Try to say lovingly, not at all. Karma, an impersonal force that brings about consequences from previous acts. Hmm. No, I don't believe in karma at all. Do you mind if I tell you what I do believe? Well, of course, yeah, I'd love to hear it. I do believe in a personal God who keeps perfect record. I believe in a God who's both gracious and kind, but he's also holy and just. And I believe in a God who will bring consequences to those who have dishonored him. Uh, He will bring consequences to those who have mistreated people. In other words, people will reap what they sow because my personal God who knows all things will see to it that the unrighteous will be judged. And I also believe in a God who rewards those who trust him. In fact, it's beyond reward. The scripture says that God will do exceedingly and abundantly beyond anything you would ever ask or imagine. And I often think to myself, I imagine a lot. And if God, if you're going to do that, 
that it's more that you just reward me. You bless me. And God will take you in those moments where all you have is God alone. In those moments where you have answers, but you can't solve things. Where you have struggles, you have had betrayals, and you can't fix them. And when you walk into the raging waters and you discover that the ground is firm and I will not betray you, God, I will not redefine you as Kushner did. I will not condemn you. I will trust you. And I will call my family and my friends as David did to trust in him at all times, verse 8. Pour out your hearts to him. Why? Because God is your refuge. God is your refuge. And when all you have left is God alone, you'll discover that all you need is God alone. Dear friend, it's become a friend, was telling me the story of his last four years. He and his wife felt called of God. They would leave the United States and they would go to Japan and they would reach Japan for Christ. There's a real challenge. A lot of you have faced this. You'll know what I'm talking about. You feel this calling of God and you want to make this decision. It's a move or it's, maybe it's a, it's a job relocation. And you understand that what it means for you to feel the call of God and the peace of God. But you also have these children who come along with you. And oftentimes they don't feel the call of God. They just go with you. And when he went to Japan, what he discovered is that by the age of six, uh, Japanese families will put their kids on a train for an hour and send them to school. Now, I know some of you helicopter mamas, you won't let your kid walk a half block to school. Well, they put their kids on a train for an hour each way. And his dad and mom weren't ready to do that. So he had an actually an hour and a half trip to school every day so he would take his son then he would come back home and work and then he would go back and get his son but here's what he heard every day dad I hate Japan and I hate the God who sent us here He began to discover at night, he would question himself, God, did I really hear you? God, are you going to ask me to come and reach the Japanese for Christ and lose my own son? Is that the cost? Are you going to ask me, God, to give up and sacrifice my son for the sake of people I don't know? Is that what this calling is all about? In the mornings as they were making this trip, he would try and convince his son and talk to him about it. And he realized, and this is really, really good insight, oftentimes the harder he tried to help his son love Japan, the more his son hated Japan and him. And he came to the point where he said, God, you alone can change my son's heart. And he stopped trying to convince him of how beautiful Japan was and how important it was that they lead the Japanese to Christ. He just stopped. 
He stopped because he understood that the harder he tried to fix it, the worse it got. God, my son is in your hands. You know his heart better than I do. And he would just ride the train trying to get close to a young man who would frequently say, I hate Japan and I hate you for bringing me here. When all you have left is God alone, you will discover that all you need is God. They just finished their first term. And I think it was only about six months before they were getting ready to leave Japan to come back. On the way to school one day, his son said, Dad, do we have to go back to the U.S.? Kind of looked at his son, what do you mean? I love Japan. I don't want to go home. This is home. Sometimes God takes us to that place, the betrayal of a son. The fear of a son. A friend who betrays a secret. And it's outside of your ability to fix it. It's a doctor who has the skill to fix it, just not the context or the resources. And you think in your life and you come to that place, God, all I have is you. It's in that moment, friends, you will discover all you need is God. He doesn't promise to heal every infection. He didn't heal Tim Keller's pancreatic cancer. He didn't keep my dear friend's wife, Beth, alive. And to our knowledge, he might not fix his failing kidneys. But even in that, like Joseph Bailey says, I have walked into the raging waters and I've touched bottom. Even when God answers no, as he did with David, we can say, he alone is my rock, my foundation. He alone is what I stand on when the rages of the water come over me. And I will stand. So will you.